This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Varied Types by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 6 Rostand. When Cyrano de Bergerac was published, it bore the subordinate title of a heroic comedy. We have no tradition in English literature which would justify us in calling a comedy heroic, though there was once a poet who called a comedy divine. By the current modern conception, the hero has his place in a tragedy, and the one kind of strength which is systematically denied to him is the strength to succeed. That the power of a man's spirit might possibly go to the length of turning a tragedy into a comedy is not admitted. Nevertheless, almost all the primitive legends of the world are comedies, not only in the sense that they have a happy ending, but in the sense that they are based upon a certain optimistic assumption that the hero is destined to be the destroyer of the monster. Singularly enough, this modern idea of the essential, disastrous character of life, when seriously considered, connects itself with a hyper-aesthetic view of tragedy and comedy, which is largely due to the influence of modern France, from which the great heroic comedies of Monsieur Rostand have come. The French genius has an instinct for remedying its own evil work, and France gives always the best cure for Frenchiness. The idea of comedy, which is held in England by the school which pays most attention to the technical niceties of art, is a view which renders such an idea as that of heroic comedy quite impossible. The fundamental conception in the minds of the majority of our younger writers is that comedy is par excellence a fragile thing. It is conceived to be a conventional world of the most absolutely delicate and gimrack description. Such stories as Mr. Max Beerbohm's Happy Hypocrites are conceptions which would vanish or fall into utter nonsense if viewed by one single degree too seriously. But great comedy, the comedy of Shakespeare or Stern, not only can be, but must be taken seriously. There is nothing to which a man must give himself up with more faith and self-abandonment than to genuine laughter. In such comedies one laughs with the heroes and not at them. The humor which steeps the stories of Falstaff and Uncle Toby is a cosmic and philosophic humor, a geniality which goes down to the depths. It is not superficial reading, it is not even, strictly speaking, light reading. Our sympathies are as much committed to the characters as if they were the predestined victims in a Greek tragedy. The modern writer of comedies may be said to boast of the brittleness of his characters. He seems always on the eve of knocking his puppets to pieces. When John Oliver Hobbes wrote for the first time a comedy of serious emotions, she named it with the thinly disguised contempt for her own work, a sentimental comedy. The ground of this conception of the artificiality of comedy 
is a profound pessimism. Life in the eyes of these mournful buffoons is itself an utterly tragic thing. Comedy must be as hollow as a grinning mask. It is a refuge from the world, and not even, properly speaking, a part of it. Their wit is a thin sheet of shining ice over the eternal waters of bitterness. Cyrano de Bergerac came to us as the new decoration of an old truth, that merriment was one of the world's natural flowers and not one of its exotics. The gigantic-esque levity, the flamboyant eloquence, the Rabelaisian puns and digressions were seen to be once more what they had been in Rabelais, the mere outbursts of a human sympathy and bravado, as old and solid as the stars. The human spirit demanded wit as headlong and haughtily as it will. All was expressed in the words of Cyrano at his highest moment of happiness, Emifo desk giants. An essential aspect of this question of heroic comedy is the question of drama in rhyme. There is nothing that affords so easily a point of attack for the dramatic realist as the conduct of a play in verse. According to his canons, it is indeed absurd to represent a number of characters facing some terrible crisis in their lives by capping rhymes like a party playing bout rhymes. In his eyes it must appear somewhat ridiculous that two enemies taunting each other with insupportable insults should obligingly provide each other with metrical spacing and neat and convenient rhymes. But the whole of this view rests finally upon the fact that few persons, if any today, understand what is meant by a poetical play. It is a singular thing that those poetical plays which are now written in England by the most advanced students of the drama follow exclusively the lines of Maeterlinck and use verse and rhyme for the adornment of a profoundly tragic theme. But rhyme has a supreme appropriateness for the treatment of the higher comedy. The land of heroic comedy is, as it were, a paradise of lovers, in which it is not difficult to imagine that men could talk poetry all day long. It is far more conceivable that men's speech should flower naturally into these harmonious forms when they are filled with the essential spirit of youth, than when they are sitting gloomily in the presence of immemorial destiny. The great error consists in supposing that poetry is an unnatural form of language. We should all like to speak poetry at the moment when we truly live, and if we do speak, it is because we have an impediment in our speech. It is not song that is the narrow or artificial thing. It is conversation that is broken and stammering attempt at song. When we see men in a spiritual extravaganza like Cyrano de Bergerac speaking in rhyme, it is not our language disguised or distorted, but our language rounded and made whole. Rhymes answer each other as the sexes in flowers and in humanity answer each other. Men do not speak so, it is true. Even when they are inspired or in love, they talk in entities. But the poetic comedy does not misrepresent the speech one half so much as the speech misrepresents the soul. Monsieur Rostand showed even more than his usual insight when he called Cyrano de Bergerac a comedy, despite the fact that, strictly speaking, it ends with disappointment and death. The essence 
of tragedy is the spiritual breakdown or decline and in the great french play the spiritual sentiment mounts unceasingly until the last line it is not the facts themselves but our feeling about them that makes tragedy and comedy and death is more joyful in rostand than life in maeterlinck the same apparent contradiction holds good in the case of the drama of la Aignan, now being performed with so much success although the hero is a weakling the subject a fiasco the end a premature death and a personal disillusionment yet in spite of this theme which might have been chosen for its depressing qualities the unconquerable paean of the praise of things the ungovernable gaiety of the poet's song swells so high that at the end it seems to drown all the weak voices of the characters in one crashing chorus of great things and great men a multitude of mottoes might be taken from the play to indicate and illustrate not only its own spirit but much of the spirit of modern life when in the vision of the field of wagram the horrible voices of the wounded cry out les corbeil les corbeil the duke overwhelmed with a nightmare of hideous trivialities cries out we saunt les aigles that antithesis might stand alone as an invocation at the beginning of the twentieth century to the spirit of heroic comedy when an ex-general of napoleon is asked his reason for having betrayed the emperor he cries la fatigue and at that a veteran private of the great army rushes forward and crying passionately et nous pours out a terrible description of the life lived by the commoner soldier today when pessimism is almost as much a symbol of wealth and fashion as jewels or cigars when the pampered heirs of the ages can sum up life in few other words but la fatigue there might surely come a cry from the vast mass of common humanity from the beginning at nous it is this potentiality for enthusiasm among the mass of men that makes a function of comedy at once common and sublime shakespeare's much ado about nothing is a great comedy because behind it is the whole pressure of that love of love which is the youth of the world which is common to all the young especially to those who swear they will die bachelors and old maids love's labors lost is filled with the same energy and there it falls even more definitely into the scope of our subject since it is a comedy in rhyme in which all men speak lyrically as naturally as the birds sing in pairing time what the love of love is to shakespearean comedies that other and more mysterious human passion the love of death is to Laiglion. whether we shall ever have in england a new tradition of poetic comedy it is difficult at present to say but we shall assuredly never have it until we realize that comedy is built upon everlasting foundations in the nature of things that it is not a thing too light to capture but too deep to plumb monsieur rostand in his description of the battle of wagram does not shrink from bringing about the duke's ears the frightful voices of actual battle of men torn by crows and suffocated with blood but when the duke 
terrified at these dreadful appeals, asked them for their final word. They all cried together, Viva la Emperor! Monsieur Rostand perhaps did not know that he was writing an allegory. To me, that field of Wagram is the field of the modern war of literature. We hear nothing but the voices of pain. The whole is one phonograph of horror. It is right that we should hear these things. It is right that not one of them should be silenced. But these cries of distress are not in life, as they are in modern art, the only voices. They are the voices of men, but not the voice of man. When questioned finally and seriously as to their conception of their destiny, men have from the beginning of time answered in a thousand philosophies and religions with a single voice, and in a sense most sacred and tremendous. Viva la Emperor! End of chapter 6